You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm here today with the chair of the Standing Committee, Professor Bill Banks of Syracuse, author of authoritative books on national security, and a man with a voice for radio and podcasts. Thanks for coming in. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Elisa. Voice or no voice. Well, it sounds just the same. It's definitely the stuff of voiceovers. So today, I think we should do a news roundup because so much has been happening. And I think we're all still remembering, of course, the events of 9-11 some 22 years ago. But I thought we might start on some of the things that we've hit on previous podcasts, which raise very serious national security concerns. And one of them is that there is a very serious drought right now in the United States, and it's having an impact on food supply. And so people might say, well, how is this a national security concern? What do you think, Bill? Well, I think our officials, certainly the Department of Defense and the intelligence community have for years been aware that climate change is an important national security issue. And I think they appropriately are taking action in anticipation of the impacts of climate change on our national security We're foreseeing tremendous amounts of migration of peoples who will flee climate exigencies of one sort or another. Could be sudden or it could be long-term trends that create droughts or floods, famines in various parts of the world and population shifts, as we all know, place tremendous stress on international borders and on the capacities of states to be able to manage, care for, putting aside ethnic, religious, political differences that could cause conflict. And I also think that our intelligence and defense leadership are concerned that even here in the United States, tremendous effects of climate change on the ability to generate uh, electric power, for example, or to protect against mega storms of one kind or another could create national tragedies that well exceed those that we had, for example, with Hurricane Katrina or even with 9-11. So it's front and center. Yeah, and and I remember that there was a national intelligence estimate on climate change, which was authored shortly after DNI Avril Haines was appointed. And it discussed one of the risks, to your point, being mass migration on a scale that no service such as CBP or even the military could withstand. And so uh, this is a real challenge to borders and even the concept of nationality. But I would also note that um, some of our partners in NATO are going to have some trouble because they rely on hydroelectric power plants. And in particular, Norway is experiencing one of its first and worst droughts in centuries. And apparently, if you believe some of the reporting that I have seen in French newspapers, the Chinese even considered seeding clouds and some other questionable things in terms of their long-term impact to the global climate, which was one of their at least considered means of stopping the heat wave that they suffered last month. And if you get a chance, listeners, you should probably go back and listen to some of our podcasts on climate change. We've actually done, I think, seven at this point. So yeah, I think it's a big national security concern. The other thing is that I found this kind of interesting when we're looking at Europe and its response to the war in Ukraine, which among other things was surprise, but Germany's federal minister of defense, Christine Lambrecht, has announced before the German Council on Foreign Relations that Germany wants to be Europe's leading military power now that, of course, Putin has invaded Ukraine. And sort of refreshingly, she has said that the U.S. remains Europe's chief protector, 
And it appeared at least that she was talking about Germany increasing its contribution, which I think is what, what is it, Bill? Is like 2% or something of? Yes, it, uh, I think it was limited by law to 2%. 2% of GDP or? Yeah, I believe so. So that's very different from Angela Merkel, who sort of shrugged and, you know, sort of we'll get to it when we can. And I also wonder how she's going to be viewed in the rear view mirror, having removed all of their nuclear power plants and other things that would have kept them off of their, at least this level of dependency on Russian LNG. You know, that Western Europe is rethinking their familiarity and their friendliness toward civilian nuclear power. And I think we'll see you know, some more resources devoted to that energy cycle in the months and years to come with or without a continuation of the Ukraine war. Just the dwindling resources of oil and gas and the contribution of fossil fuels to the climate change debacle that we're entering, I think will hasten all of us becoming more nuclear friendly than we ever wanted to be. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And it was it's kind of interesting because I, I think that was one of the predictions, I think about a decade ago, uh, would be a consequence of some massive event that sort of shifted this from a political blue-red rural urban issue to sort of a one of national defense. So a little bit alarmingly, though, is that there have been some populist leaders, and we know some of them in Europe that have risen have been a pretty unappealing folks, but it looks like some populist leaders are winning in some of the elections, and it looks like they could go to, you know, full on election for prime minister in countries like Sweden. But as well, there is a conservative in Canada who has made significant political gains, and they're both very nationalistic. At least the one in Canada, I think, has supported, you know, no COVID restrictions. He supported the blockade that occurred in Canada's capital with the truckers. And interestingly enough, they're both highly nationalistic. And this is always a problem when you want people to come together and see themselves as allies with other countries in order to stand up to forces like Russia and China. So no. far, I think that the, the Western European alliance and NATO in particular are holding firm and supporting the Ukraine with the kind of vitality and commitment of resources that we in the United States like to see. Of course, our leadership has been very strong in supporting Ukraine and the war. As we see just this week, the tide seems to have turned, at least for the moment. Ukraine has made considerable advances on the ground, has retaken a good deal of the territory that they lost early on to Russia in the north and the east, and even making some gains in the south. And if anything, the leadership in Ukraine is more defiant than they were a week ago, two weeks ago, two months ago. And I think there's even some pretty vocal opposition to President Putin inside Russia that is beginning to filter its way up and out into the Western sphere. Yeah, I, I've heard that that's been even some leaders of sort of smaller cities and so on. I just hope they don't find themselves falling off balconies or falling downstairs you know, because that is sometimes a hazard of, of speaking truth to power in Russia. But it is a welcome change, at least from our perspective, for sure. It's just astonishing what Ukraine has been able to accomplish militarily, diplomatically, and in terms of preparing the population for what they've had to endure. And of course, the people themselves, they are the key. But, you know, I think the Biden administration has done an excellent job of meeting the needs of Ukraine, of being there when Ukraine has asked for something. 
in our earlier reluctance to supply more sophisticated weaponry and more advanced weaponry, I think, has melted away. And now we're, we're giving them what they want, uh, pretty much. There's still, I think, one of the lines in the sand that all of us hope will never be crossed is one that says we're not going to allow our materials to go inside Russian territory. You're not going to fight the Russians in Russia. You're going to fight them in Ukraine. And I hope that the war is contained in that way because as erratic and as irrational as Putin has proven himself to be, if the war is brought to Russian soil, I think uh, we don't know what could happen. It could be all bets are off. Yeah, I think that's right. The other thing is, I think that that would eliminate any possibility of the Russian people, you know, trying to get rid of Putin. Yes. So uh, as this war rages on, though, there have been some sort of, I guess, amusing developments, one of which is that several people have now been added to a list of Ukraine. They have designations, just like we do, of individuals. And looks like Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and former Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard have been listed by Ukraine, along with several other American politicians, academics and activists that Kiev claims is promoting Russian propaganda. So what did you think about this? I had to say I, I had a chuckle. I mean, Glenn Greenwald appears to have been made it on yeah. that list. Shocker. Well, you know, everybody's everybody's in this game now, right, of trying to suss out where the bad guys are, where the disinformation is coming from. And if you're not part of the game, you, you're always on the defensive. You're always losing. You can't pick yourself up. So Ukraine has been very much out front in social media and in cyber defense since this uh, whole circus started in February, they're very sophisticated, they're very aggressive, and I think very smart. And it's not surprising to see some Americans on the list as well as a lot of people from everywhere else. Uh, you know, I'll show you my list if you show me yours. It's that kind of game now. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think it's funny. I wonder with these politicians, a lot of them, they do say things on social media and you think that it, by the time the election comes around, people will remember this terrible thing. And of course, they don't. They don't. <laughs> you know, they're too busy living their lives, getting the kids to uh, soccer practice and other things. And, you know, there's so many, there's such an avalanche of this information. It just gets lost. That's true. So it's also something to note right now that Chairman Xi of China and Putin will have a meeting that's supposed to take place this week in the lovely country known as Uzbekistan. And also in China, the party Congress is coming up, and that is the time during which Chairman Xi is expected to be elected to a third term. And of course, the free and fair elections that always occur in China. Of course, very free, very fair. It's ironic, isn't it, that at the same time, the Chinese are continuing to have massive lockdowns in some of their cities of greater than 10 million people, uh, where, where most of the world has backed away from heavy COVID restrictions, and there's not much COVID in China that we know of, there's still massive lockdowns. And I think some segments of the population are getting pretty darn tired of this rigmarole. And as you pointed out a few minutes ago, Elisa, China is also suffering a wicked heat wave combination of drought in one part of the country and flooding in another that is not unusual historically in China, but the gravity of it seems especially severe this time. 
Yeah. And last year they produced more construction waste than the rest of the world combined. So they're still building despite the Evergrande debacle that cost many of the middle-class and rising middle-class of Chinese citizens, their entire life savings in an effort to acquire that coveted condominium, which is where most of the people live in, in any kind of urban environment, at least. So yeah, but he'll be elected probably by 99% of the vote or some figure along those lines. At least 99. <laughs> All right. And so Russia, talk about deft uh, sort of social media and social efforts, generally external operations and sort of human influence efforts. Russia announced that it was selling military aircraft to Turkey and it elected to make this announcement when the Turkish delegation was visiting Washington. <laughs> so apparently Dmitry Shugayev, I guess is how you say his name, he claimed that Turkey signed a new deal to get a batch of S-400 missile defense systems from Moscow. Yeah, and this Turkish stock exchange immediately took a hit because of course there are sanctions on Russia. And I would also add, of course, Turkey is a member of NATO and the one that wasn't excited about receiving Sweden and Finland when they made their application to join the alliance. So yeah, this is, I don't know, what does this feel to you a little consistent with um, sort of Russians strategy of influence at all times without rest? It's definitely right out of the Russian playbook, very consistent with how they've behaved geostrategically over recent years. And, you know, at the same time that they're selling S-400 defense systems to Turkey, they're having to scramble to purchase what they need to fight in Ukraine from North Korea. That's right. They're running out of sellers to give them their necessary armaments to fight a war they're actually engaged in. Yeah, it, I exactly. And I, I think they may be running all of it. But the you know, the the one possibility here is that, you know, uh, India and China can end up given their consumption and their growing populations, they can end up basically refinancing Russia because, you know, even its reserves apparently tanked in just the last week. So the, in terms of any reserves that they ever had financially, those are dwindling really quickly. But again, you know, depending upon how things go at this meeting in Uzbekistan, it's sort of given whether or not they develop a greater relationship with India, you know, things could shift back. I don't think optimism is something that we should rely on being a consistent feeling as this thing plays out. I agree with that. Next year, maybe Uzbekistan will become a tourist destination. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath. I'm not buying my tickets yet. I think I'd go to most of the other stands before I go to Uzbekistan. Yes, I would definitely choose another stand. I, I don't know how you felt about this, but sometimes I see these things and they come across, you know, in any of the tech online publications that I look at. Sometimes I see these things, Bill, and I think that they're really national security issues. And the one that struck me this week was that Apple is now offering a medication reminder feature. And I'm just thinking about what that could broadcast to a foreign government. That would be HIPAA protected information. It would be a lot of personally identifiable information and it would be held presumably by Apple in its cloud or on its servers, which is a single point of influence and would certainly be a very direct attack vector for any foreign nation that wanted to do things like start a pandemic and figure out what would get most people sick. What were, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I share that concern. And I think, you know, it's another step in inevitability, I think, of uh, cyber vulnerabilities of personal information, because we, the people, 
demand convenience. Uh, we demand ever more access to information online and to healthcare materials online. We want our medicine, we want our vaccinations, we want our appointments, and we want them now. That phenomenon is not brand new, but it's been increased, I think, all the time. And at the same time, the, the bad guys, whether they be foreign nationals or, or others, criminal syndicates, are getting ever more sophisticated at being able to break the code. And so it's going to be cat and mouse. I don't think there's a fix. You know, they're going to be after big domains like Apple or, or Meta, but they're going to be after the smaller mom and pop size outlets as well. And I think all of us are going to be patching and fixing our personal vulnerabilities. And many of us are capable of doing that, but you, you have to be particularly worried about those who are not able or savvy enough to get out ahead of protecting their stuff. Agreed. And I think one of the reasons we see those criminal organizations centered, even de decentralized in countries with a weak or corrupt rule of law is that they're allowed to flourish there and do this kind of thing to the extent they're criminal syndicates, but they're also easily exploited by state operators. So yeah, that's not good. Of course, I think there's less of that in the United States. Maybe I'm an optimist, but in part because we do have a rule of law and we do have robust and effective federal law enforcement agencies. But I think today, one of the most important things that we should probably talk about is it's been 21 years since Al-Qaeda attacked us, brought down both of the Twin Towers, which were full of people at nine o'clock in the morning, basically after everybody had gone inside to work you know, waged an attack on the Pentagon. And this was conducted by radicalized members of Al-Qaeda and 3,000 people died. And in addition to those two targets, you know, courageous members of a flight that had another set of attackers on it uh, brought the plane down themselves in order to stop what was happening in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, basically sacrificed themselves. And actually, I get a little emotional talking about this because I think it changed all of our lives. And it, look, I don't know, maybe it's, but I feel like this was a bigger deal than, far bigger deal than the attacks by the Japanese on the island of Hawaii. But it changed everything, right? Literally, it changed our law and our institutions. It's clearly a sea change in the way we've managed our national security affairs for now 21 years. And I don't see any indication that the changes wrought by 9-11 are diminishing. I teach a class on Sunday. So this year on 9-11, I had an online class at five o'clock Sunday afternoon. And most of my students are in their late twenties or thirties. And they were either little children or not yet born when 9-11 happened, but we did a moment of silence. And then I talked about 9-11 for a few minutes. And then we did a problem after discussing Youngstown sheet and tube versus Sawyer on the uh, utility of the AUMF as a legal tool for giving authority to the president in the so-called war on terror. And th that's the legacy, as you know, Lisa, that so many institutional and legal changes were wrought in the days, weeks, months, and perhaps years after 9-11. We have a, an entirely different landscape now. Maybe it's worth mentioning the AUMF. Everybody knows that acronym now. NAOMF now is 21 years old or almost to a day. It's been through a lot. It's been uh, applied to authorize United States actions all around the globe through the use of military force directly, detention operations, through military commission proceedings, through domestic investigation and security operations, 
do counterterrorism operations everywhere, just about in the globe, particularly in less governed or less friendly places. And at every turn, because the Congress was on board with the president of the United States a few days after 9-11, very properly so, we have been positioned as a strong, unified government in support of a strong national security. I think uh, most Americans, most members of both political parties, most members of Congress and the executive branch continue to support the broad stroke of the AOMF that the United States should take measures to use all necessary and appropriate force to combat those who are responsible for 9-11. Over time, the message begins to wane because responsibility, of course, lessens over time. The connection between those who were culpable in Al-Qaeda or the Taliban and those who are trying to do ill by us now may not exist or the connections are very attenuated. So the, the authority needs to be refreshed. There have been, as you know, at least in many attempts to freshen up the authority in the AOMF, to modernize it in some way, to supply a sunset that would force Congress to come back and take a new look at, at the landscape of the use of force over time. But so far, it's been far more convenient for us just to ride the horse that we started to ride on the you know 14th of September in, in 2001. It wasn't just the AOMF that came after 9-11 in a legal landscape. You know, the USA Patriot Act was a product of 9-11. And right. the Patriot Act, which has primarily domestic application, enabled a whole vast array of domestic security measures, investigative measures and tools that were not in place before. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was amended in the years after 9-11 because of 9-11, because of the threat of terrorism, to expand the authority of our IC to take a look at the communications of those who might have some connection to a foreign power. And of course, in the mega sense, we fundamentally reorganized our government within a year of 9-11 and created the Department of Homeland Security, which next to the Pentagon is the largest entity in the United States government. So it, it's been quite a ride. By the way, here's a, a paid political announcement. Many of our <laughs> listeners, of course, know very well that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security is about to return to live in-person conferences. And our conference, yes, it's a big Networking deal. opportunity that you're not yeah. going to get on a social network. Exactly. You have to come in person. Uh, we've been off in-person event now for more than two years. So November 17 and 18, at a location near you in a major hotel in Washington, D.C., we're going to have a conference for the 60th anniversary of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security of the ABA. And virtually every issue that Elisa and I have touched upon today is going to be dealt with in one way or another by panels for two full days of conference, including some guest speaker at dinner on uh, Thursday night and all kinds of side events during the day, in addition to, as Elisa said, a wonderful opportunity for networking for you young professionals, particularly who are trying to get acquainted or better acquainted in the field of national security law. We're thrilled about the participation of our co-sponsoring law schools, and we have some of the, the best talent in the United States to come and speak to hundreds of people 
about some of the most pressing issues, as well as taking a look back at what's happened over the 60 years time since Lewis Powell first created the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I've said my piece. Well, that was a pretty good piece. And I just want to make an important plug about it. I think it's fun. I think it's terribly energizing to come to these things. I think you're in a community of people who share your interest in national security. I think you will find it a delightfully apolitical, intelligent, high level of discourse occurring. It's just a pleasure. And you may not in your day-to-day I feel fortunate because I do feel like I work in an environment where that's the case, but I think a lot of people don't. And I think some of the main national security laws get really fleshed out. They get explained in a really, quite frankly, entertaining and engaging way. And you sit at these, you know, the way the whole thing is set up is you're actually with colleagues, you're enjoying time together at tables. You've got these, this wonderful time to meet people, exchange cards, get to know one another in the breaks and in the margins of this. And I think you leave more excited about the work you do. So I would encourage people to sign up and come. I've never regretted going. I've The only time I ever had any regret was when I couldn't come to day two once. And, and I felt really bad because that, that bothered me. And I wanted to get day two. I felt like I missed something. I, I had a hold in my heart that year. Well, I'll be there for sure. And I'm looking forward to, to seeing you, Alicia. I'm looking forward to seeing you too. And if you guys are interested, and I hope you are as you listen to this podcast, we will make sure that the link to the registration is in the notes. We'll try to make this one stop shopping. So when you finish your workout, if you're listening to us, stop long enough to click on the notes section, and then you can hyperlink, get it done. And we look forward to seeing you. And I look forward to seeing any of our listeners there. So I thought we might wrap up today by talking about books, because of course I love books and I find, I don't know about you, but I find maybe it's the filter through which I see things, but I am noticing a large number of books that talk about some of the sort of core issues that we've been discussing on the podcast and that really present some national security challenges. So um, before I sort of talk about my books, what do you think, Bill? Are you have anything you're interested in looking at these days? I am just beginning a book called The Chaos Machine by Max Fisher, which is about the impact that social media has had on our world and our lives. I feel like a, a social media dummy. And I think if I make my way through this, it looks like a very engaging read that I'm going to be smart. It would be hard to make you any smarter than you are. But I that is on my list, too. Um, and we did do even many years ago, we had Peter Singer on who wrote The Weaponization of Social Media. I'm trying to remember if that's the exact name of the book, but I thought it was fantastic. I thought he was brilliant. And I too am looking at Max Fisher's The Chaos Machine. We have a feeler out to Max, so hopefully he'll join us on the podcast here in a few weeks. And we would love to talk to him. And I suspect he would enjoy talking to us. So if, if anybody knows Max Fisher, just tell him he'll have a great time. So do you have any others on your list right now? This summer, I took a, a turn to read a biography uh, called The Great Dissenter, Justice John Marshall Harlan, the first Justice Harlan, late 19th century into the 20th. It's by Peter Canellos, and it's a masterful biography of probably one of the best justices ever on the United States Supreme Court. Harlan was a towering figure, and he was often alone in protection of civil rights, in protection of newly emancipated slaves, 
and protection of all kinds of interests for individuals in the face of a growing economic power of government against the tide, having come from a very conservative, very partisan Republican background, Republican not in Lincoln's sense, but in the in the what was then Democratic Party sense. Uh, and he just rose above it all to become a man of principle. He was a brilliant jurist. He was a, a great writer and had tireless energy. And he was a large man. I think he was, you know, something like six foot four and 250 pounds. He just was a presence uh, on the court that no one could mistake. Yeah. And I wonder, given his background, I wonder if there was some event or um, if he went to some special like national security conference that completely changed his view and opened him up to bigger and new ideas. Yeah, I think I think he was kind of <laughs> a little before the standing committee, but I know he was heavily influenced by a few people in his Ohio upbringing. Oh, okay. All right. What about you? Well, you know, I've got a bunch. Of course, Max Fisher, The Chaos Machine, I, I recently ordered. I read a book about three weeks ago called Long Path by a guy named Ari Wallach. And I can only say that I would commend this book to everybody. It's it's also not super long, but we talk a lot about one of our fatal flaws as Americans. And we don't have many because we're, we're pretty amazing at uh, reconstituting ourselves or whatever de Tocqueville said about us, always sort of resurrecting ourselves and, and moving forward in the face of adversity. But we do have short-term thinking. I think that's a product of sort of the, the culture that we live in right now. Wallach is talking about what it means to think in the long term. And so he's going to join us. He's going to come on the podcast here uh, in a couple of weeks. And I think his book is a very important book for everyone. And what I like about it is it's not really about politics, but what it is about is sort of how fraught it is to have short-term thinking. And when we look out at countries like China, who have 50-year plans, and you know we're busy, what is it now, watching 98 hours of TikTok reels per week on average, you know, we're losing ourselves. And something has to write this path, or we will be forever lost um, and controlled by external forces, whether they're commercially driven or not. But anyway, I think his book is a really important discussion of what it means to think long term. So I asked him to come on and he said yes. The other book that I'm very interested in, which I've just started reading, is something called The Constitution in Jeopardy. And it was written by former Senator Russ Feingold and a young professor at Stanford whose name, I believe, and he'll forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, is Peter Prendeville. But what it suggests, and I think at least from what I can tell, having not finished it rather persuasively, is that we're moving to another constitutional Congress and a very intense effort to sort of decentralize and pull power away from the federal government. The reason it causes me alarm is that weak central government is a national security threat. And it's always a tricky thing in the United States because we are a republic and we do have individual states. What is the balance there? But if the federal government becomes significantly weak, that makes us more vulnerable to outside forces and our adversaries. So those are my books. All right. Any parting thoughts today, Professor Banks? Do you read for fun? I do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs>
We'll talk about that offline sometime, I guess. <laughs> we will. We, we will absolutely talk about that. I, I do like, I like older novels set in Hollywood for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a huge fan of a writer called Bud Schulberg, who wrote, of course, you know, everybody knows Face in the Crowd, but he wrote something called What Makes Sammy Run. And I, I watch, uh, occasionally I watch some TV when I'm not reading, um, not preparing for this podcast, not working and not being a mom. There can't be too many hours. <laughs> it's not much. It's not much. All right. Well, I'm glad you came in today. It's always a pleasure to see you. And I look forward to seeing you again at the conference, which will just be very quickly. So folks, if you haven't signed up, do that soon. So thanks for coming in. Hope to see you soon. Thank you, Elisa. All right. Thanks for listening today. And remember to subscribe to NSLT. Feel free to send us comments, feedback, or suggest speakers or topics you want us to cover. You can reach us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or you can send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our producer is moi, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. I want to thank Rebecca Salido, who was our program manager, and my other co-producer, who I'm just crazy about and is one of the best things going for the standing committee, that's Holly McMahon, along with all the other leaders on the standing committee on law and national security, including Professor Bill Banks. It's really great to have you listen to us today. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.